Hey guys, and welcome to episode 42 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today, you're joined by your hosts, Sierra and Jack, and we have another Q&A episode for you today. If you do enjoy the podcast, please feel free to repost it onto your story and tag myself, tag Tierra, and tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians as well. Also, if you are interested in what coaching services we offer and you would like to inquire, please check out our coaching website, which you can find on either of our Instagram profiles or just search www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. So today we'll just start off with talking a little bit about how our past week has gone. So I'll let Tierra begin. Sweet. Okay, so I feel like a lot has happened in the past week. But yeah, I guess to just give you guys a rundown, we are recording this on the 17th of September. So I'm now officially 158 days out. So I've been in prep now for just over two and a half weeks. And as expected, the time has just flown by. And I can't say this enough. I'm just so damn grateful that I did start 25 weeks out because the days and the weeks are just flying by. It's pretty damn crazy. But All in all, there hasn't been too many changes to my last update, you know, I've still been feeling really good, macros have stayed the same, so my macros are still 300 carb, 150 protein, and 40 fat, and during that very first week of prep, as someone would expect, you know, when they get an initial calorie drop, my body weight did drop by quite a lot, I lost about somewhere between 1 to 1.3 kilograms, you know, depending on weight fluctuations with the scale. But then in this past week, I've continued to lose another 400 grams. So my lowest weigh-in to date has now been 66.3 kilograms, and I started off at 68 kilograms. So really happy with how I'm feeling. You know, energy levels are still high. Training performance is still there. I won't lie in saying that I, like, I'm starting to feel a bit flat in the gym and even though, you know, I'm still on 300 grams of carbs, which is a lot for some people, I just want to emphasize that it's all relative, you know, and I am very accustomed to eating a very high carbohydrate diet. So dropping my carbohydrates down from 400 down to 300, I've definitely noticed that, especially this last week, just feeling a little bit flatter. But, you know, like Brandon Kempter says, you need to get flat to get lean, but you need to carb up to look lean. So I love that saying. (laughs) Anyway, I'm really hoping that I can, you know, ride these macros out for as long as I possibly can because I like where they are right now. (laughs) I'm not going to lie in saying that, you know, obviously I know that I'm going to need to do another drop in the weeks to come once my weight plateaus, but for now it's all good. And Jack and I took our fortnightly skin folds on the weekend too, and my skin folds went down by nine millimeters, which is I'm really happy with and the majority of the my skin fold measurements came down on my supraspinale and my abdominal fold so I lost around seven of those millimeters around my abdominals pretty much which is awesome and luckily thanks to doing hip thrust three times a week uh, my glute circumference has stayed the same so always thankful for that but other than that things are going really really well couldn't have asked for any more and it's just, it's just been a really good week, you know, having Alicia on the podcast last week, that was epic. We got such a good response from that, and thank you so much to everyone who listened, and if you haven't yet, definitely recommend checking out that episode. Jack and I drove all the way up to Gimpy to these Border Collie breeders. It's a family of 11 Border Collies, and they we got to meet the family and all the Border Collies and spend a whole day just playing with a bunch of dogs, which was so much fun. And yeah, these are the breeders that we're looking at uh, having our puppy, essentially. So we actually arrived on the day that the dogs were in heat, and we may have even been there on the day that the dog was conceived, which is pretty exciting. So hoping to get our puppy sometime in December or January. And yeah, I know that the dogs absolutely loved Jack. We posted heaps of photos and (laughs) Jack is just like surrounded by dogs. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because small dogs don't seem to like me that much, but big dogs do. Yeah, small dogs don't like me either. I don't know. Is it the way we smell or... I, I don't know, I, but I'm not going to lie. I'm, I've never been the biggest fan of small dogs either. Like, not, not, nice. not trying to be mean, but you know, like, I've just always been a big dog girl. Like, I love dogs that, you know, you can take to the beach and can fetch sticks and go for runs with you and really like friendly and fluffy. And 
oh, I just, I love Border Collies. They're like my dream dog and Black Labs and Golden Retrievers. Just, I love those types of dogs, you know? Not so much into the pugs like a lot of people are. I just think they're, ugh, ugh. Yeah, I would, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you don't like pugs either? <laughs> I think I would rather Border Collie. <laughs> mm. Yes. <laughs> All right, so Jack, how's this past week been for you? Yeah, it's been quite a big week for me as well. So quite a few big changes uh, to training and nutrition as well. So first up with training, this is week three of my training block. And yeah, I decided to make quite a big cut on volume and on exercise selection as well. So typically I do around, yeah, pretty close to 20 sets per week for most muscle groups. Um, if anything, my lower body would probably be slightly lower than my upper. And in the last few mesos, I've probably made a lot more progress with my, actually, that's not really fair, but I have made very, I'm very consistent with my progress in lower body and upper body has been a bit more inconsistent the last meso or two. So what I've decided to do, because I do three upper sessions a week and two lower. So the, the, the only issue with three upper sessions is that your volume can creep up on you very easily if you're not careful. So what I've decided to do is just cut back on the weekly sets for each muscle for each upper body muscle group. And yeah, I'll be interested to see how that translates into recovery and um, some more consistent strength gains as well. Uh, but yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm very happy with my strength improvements and physique improvements. But of course, I'm always striving for something better. And so for my nutrition, I've decided to do a mini cut as well. Ooh, we're both <laughs> cutting at the same time. <laughs> Jack, hopped on, Jack hopped on the dieting train. <laughs> mm. And yeah, I, I definitely didn't need to do a mini cut at this stage in terms of my body composition. It wasn't wasn't like I wasn't holding too much body fat, but it's more due to the psychological factors and also nutrition. So I was getting to the point with food between seven to 800 grams of carbs a day where it was a bit difficult at times to train with that amount and also just very low, sorry, very high satiation throughout the day. And I found that it was impacting my training in terms of mindset and like you would expect yeah, that's the main reason as well. Like, I feel like I needed that um, switch so I could pursue something for another four weeks. It'll only be a four-week mini cut, lose about five kilos, um, but then I'll be straight back onto gaining. And yeah, I haven't been in a deficit since uh, my competition last year in May, so quite a long time to be gaining consistently, and I've gained about 15 kilos since then. So I think uh, I don't see any negatives to mini cutting at this stage. No, literally, all you have to lose is a little bit of body fat. <laughs> uh, but that was I good. thank you very much. <laughs> but I think that is really important to emphasize. Like you said, it's not always necessarily about body composition. You don't have to have completely gone off the rails and gained a bunch of excess body fat or something. Sometimes the signs of a mini cut can be more mental and you just you don't feel like yourself and you feel a little bit lethargic and you don't like feeling like that you know you want to be energetic and also really having that drive and that energy to train as well because that is so damn important to us so I think that's really good that you're doing this you know even though I think that like you said your body composition you still look great you know but there's literally nothing to lose and I think that this is a good plan of attack. It's very, very temporary. It's very short term, but hopefully, you know, it, it gets you feeling a little bit better. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think it will be useful at this stage as well, just to see how I, like, I'm interested to see how adaptive my thermogenesis is because I've even going down to 500 carb, I'm still in a, like a almost like around 850 calorie deficit. So <laughs> I quote Jack yesterday. So he was figuring out his mini cut macros. And he was looking at my fitness pal and he was like, wow, 500 grams of carbs is still a decent amount. And I just looked at him with like these big eyes. I'm like, yeah, 500 grams of carbs is a decent amount. Like, 
a bikini girl would probably punch you in the arm right now. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. Uh, and also, in other very exciting news, we've got the ICN Brisbane Classic coming up this weekend, which Jack and I both have competitors competing in. And that should be so much fun. We know that the ICN Tropics was just this past weekend. And, oh, wow. It was just amazing seeing everyone up there. Everyone, you know, who competes with the ICN, who listens to this podcast. You know, we were Jack and I were keeping up to date with all of your photos posted throughout the weekend and all the story updates. And everyone just looked amazing. Honestly, all that hard work has just paid off. And you guys looked incredible. So great job to every single one of you and it's too bad we weren't able to be there but we're really excited to be at the Brisbane show this weekend that should be super duper fun and yeah I've got a competitor Cara she'll be competing in bikini she'll be doing swimwear now and she'll also be doing sports model and Jack you've got uh you've got Lockie competing as well yeah so Lockie will be competing in bodybuilding teens juniors and the relevant uh weight classes i think as well so yeah i'm very excited for him to compete it's been been a long like solid 20 to 25 weeks for him and yeah he's done a great job conditioning is awesome so can't wait to see him rock it on stage yeah holy crap i can't wait to see Lockie tan and carved up and pumped up that's gonna be epic all right, so yeah, I guess that's a good roundup on our past week. So we will get straight into the questions, guys. So this first question was asked by Sean Merle, and it says, During an off-season, what do you use to determine when to mini-cut? Waist circumference, percent of weight gain, etc. So, Jack, I think given your circumstances, this is a pretty perfect question for you to answer. Yeah, it's a good question, and... Essentially, there's no defined like evidence-based guidelines for mini cutting. So we don't actually have like waist circumference, percent weight gain, and all those sorts of like very uh, objective measures. But we there are many subjective measures that we can use. And to be honest, they're probably better um, considering there's so much individual variation. Like some people are going to feel much more comfortable at a higher body weight and perform better compared to someone like me who... I start to feel quite uncomfortable when my body fat gets too high and and that a lot of that's associated like someone who's 20% body fat might be on much lower calories than someone who's at like 13 to 15 um it's all it's all variation so yeah a couple of the measurements or variables that we take into consideration are like how uncomfortable are you feeling with your food intake uh there's in saying that though there's a lot of things that can be done in terms of that, like choosing higher GI foods, trying to manipulate your meals and stuff as well and meal timing. So usually if someone's saying, oh, I'm too full and then they're like 12% body fat, then I'm not really going to, I'm basically going to say like man up a little bit and try and try and get that food in. Just eat it. (laughs) (laughs) What was that song? Um, Who sang that? Michael Jackson. No, Michael Jackson, but there was the guy who did the, uh, you know, he did the he did the makeover of it. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, oh, okay, I got it. It's Weird Al, right? And remember, he did that parody. Was like uh, riding nerdy. Do you remember him? Did no. you ever watch Weird Al? Dude, what do you do on YouTube? <laughs> okay, anyway, sorry. I was sorry. watching Christian Guzman. Or something. Oh, well, I was watching Weird Al. So, <laughs> all right. So funny how we found each other. Um, what, what was the, yeah, get back to the mini cuts. <laughs> yeah. So food satiety is a big one. And especially if it's starting to impact your training as well. But yeah, like I said, if you're eating, still eating big salads and lots of oats and all that sort of stuff, um, and getting very full, then I would try and manipulate your food intake a little bit. Uh, other sorts of factors are, is your rate of body fat unproductive? So essentially, if you're thinking, usually um, people who mini cut are interested in competing. So if your body fat is getting too high in the sense that how much is it going to be to mini cut and then do a big diet on top? So let's say your stage weight is about 75 kilos. If you get to 100 kilos, then that's a whole 25 kilos that you have to lose. And let's say you lose 10 kilos in a mini cut, which is quite a damn high amount for a mini cut. And then you also... <laughs> that's quite the cut. That's <laughs> and then that still leaves like 15 kilos to lose in a um, 
in the contest prep as well. So that would be an example of it being unproductive because you'd end up being over-dieted and lose a bunch of muscle mass as well. Yeah, I think you touched on a really good point there with training becoming unproductive. So for example, let's say that your body weight continues to creep up, but you're still shoulder pressing the same, benching the same, rowing the same weight, squatting the same weight. Essentially, you're doing the exact same thing, but you're you're just a little bit fatter. Mm. So I think that's usually a pretty good sign that, hey, this weight gain is not indicative of extra muscle mass and it's just gonna be harder to lose in the future if I keep going. So, hey, I'm probably in a pretty good position to, you know, put myself in a slight caloric deficit and cut back a little bit. And the great thing about mini cuts is that because you're at a higher body fat percentage, you are not at a risk of muscle loss. As long as you keep your protein adequate, you know, and you're getting enough sleep at night, you're still providing a resistance training stimulus and you don't do anything stupid. Like you don't go from 500 carbs a day to 100 grams of carbs a day or something, you know, you're still eating a decent amount of food so that you can accommodate exercise performance. You're not gonna lose any muscle mass you know so there's no risk of that yeah the only other factor i'll say is just the mental side of things and like this was one of the bigger aspects for me i think i do just need a a four-week period of a change of tactic and that'll really help re like get me a bit more i there's no way like i've lost any interest in what i'm doing or i've lost motivation but i think just a little bit of a tangent will help me like redirect some focus and yeah, I've, I kind of have lost a little bit of that drive and intensity with training as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited for you to get that back. So yeah, it should be good. And uh, hopefully over these next two weeks, we don't have two hangry dietitians in the house and we're not fighting over the microwave or the food <laughs> processor to make uh, an ice cream. But <laughs> yeah, it should be good. Okay, so we'll move on to the next question. Yeah, so the next one's by Corinne and she asks... How does digestive efficiency affect caloric intake? Damn, so this is a really good question, and I guess we could take so many different approaches to answering it, but, you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? So, yeah, this is quite a relevant question to Tierra and I, and it is quite multifaceted, so we could take a number of different approaches, but just in terms of ourselves, like, we both have a very high-fiber, high-protein diet as well, which does increase the thermic effect of food. And also high fiber diets will also block the absorption of macronutrients and micronutrients as well. Like fat is definitely probably a big one because different types of fiber will interfere with the absorption of fat. And that can be a good thing, but also potentially a bad thing as well. A good thing because it might interfere with the absorption of cholesterol and saturated fat. But then again, it will interfere with monounsaturated fat and polyunsaturated fat as well. And also, you know, if you're not absorbing enough fat, then, you know, fat helps the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. So if you were eating a crazy high-fiber diet, so somewhere upwards of like 75 or 100 grams per day, plus a very, very low-fat diet, there could be a risk that you aren't absorbing all of your fat-soluble vitamins. But again, we don't actually know numbers there or total amounts. It would highly depend on the context and it's kind of out of our control what's happening in the small intestine sometimes. (laughs) Mm. But the other probably common or hopefully not so common aspect will be people with uh, intestinal disorders like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and potentially even IBS, but uh, I think that's more unlikely. Yeah, and celiac disease as well, you know, because people who are diagnosed with celiac disease and they do have a gluten intolerance, what gluten does is it flattens the villi in our small intestine. And the villi, you can almost imagine them as like these, you know, the the anemones, anemones, (laughs) anyone who's watched Finding Nemo, they're kind of like that. So imagine little anemones. I'm doing these little funky things with my fingers right now. Uh, But the villi in our small intestine help to absorb different nutrients from our food. And they also have the brush border enzyme. So there's enzymes among those little villi that help to break down those foods so that they can be absorbed. But celiac disease, those villi slash anemones, they flatten out. So you have impaired absorption and you aren't able to absorb macronutrients and micronutrients, which can lead to serious micronutrient deficiency and energy deficiency. So 
that is a huge thing as well. But as at the same time, you know, celiac disease, it is honestly quite rare. I think it only affects somewhere between one to 4% of the population. But yeah, ulcerative colitis, that's when you develop ulcers in your colon, or you can also have Crohn's disease, which is like inflammation of anywhere along the GI tract. So it's not just the large colon, it's the small intestine too, and other areas of the GIT as well. But there's also pancreatic insufficiency as well. So sometimes our pancreas is insufficient and it won't actually produce certain enzymes that will help to, for example, break down fat. So it won't produce lipases. And in that case, if you're eating fats in the diet, because you don't have those lipases, you can't break down those long chain fatty acids and those triglycerides. So they'll keep passing through the small intestine into the large intestine, and you can be literally pooping a lot of fat. And I think it's called, you have the name for this, right? Yeah, it's steatorrhea. Steatorrhea. Don't forget that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's your one fact for today. Yes. No, there's something Oily like... Oily poop. Yeah, literally. I heard, I don't know if this is a true, <laughs> uh, but I heard that in Las Vegas, you know, the diets are so atrocious and they have such poor quality food that the sewers there are just full of fat from people's poop because people are literally just pooping oil. It's like disgusting. Mm. Yeah, so Las Vegas, you know, they just had the Olympia there, but if you go underground, it probably stanks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any underground smells good. But... <laughs> I don't know if it's clean. Um, but yeah, do you have anything else to say on that? No, I think those are the main ones. Uh, there will always be, just like anything, there will be individual variation depending on how efficiently and effectively you absorb certain nutrients. Uh, but I think we covered the major aspects or the most common ones. Yeah, definitely. I think really the, the t most common ones a lot of people experience is just having a high fiber diet and a high protein diet. Like Jack said at the very start, that's going to increase your thermic effect of food. So you're just going to burn more calories naturally or literally effortlessly because your body just has to break down those extra nutrients, which is, ah, I, I'm not complaining, man. <laughs> It's it's less work and it's less, you know, elevated heart rate or anything like that, right? And you just really you get to eat more food. I really think and I'm a strong believer and that's why you and I are both able to keep our caloric intake and especially our carbohydrate intake quite high both in an improvement season and in a comp prep because a lot of our carbohydrate containing foods come from such wholesome nutrient dense sources. So Mm. Yeah, just saying. We're we're not eating ice cream over here. We're eating a hell of a lot of... Nice cream. Oats. Uh, yes, we're eating a hell of a nice cream. <laughs> so the next question is for Tierra, and it asks, Why Tierra resets each rep for hip thrust deadlifts? Is it not less effective as less time under tension? So this is a really good question, and hopefully it allows me to clarify a few things. So... First off, I think I'm getting this question because on my Instagram, I really like to post a lot of my training videos, especially my hip thrusts because I do them so damn often. But with my hip thrusts, you know, I really like to reset at the bottom of each rep. So I bring the barbell and the plates back down to the ground. I catch my breath before I go through another rep, right? But this is asking, why would you do that? Because there's less time under tension. So I just want to make it clear that there is a difference between keeping constant tension on a muscle and creating mechanical tension in a muscle. So constant tension versus mechanical tension. These, are, these two terms have very different meanings and they shouldn't be used synonymously. So constant tension, it pretty much speaks for itself, right? You're constantly keeping tension on a muscle throughout an entire exercise, throughout the duration of a set. So I guess an example of this would be, let's say you're doing dumbbell shoulder press and you're not stopping at all at the very top of a rep to catch your breath or, you know, let your heart rate come down just for a few seconds, right? You're constantly moving your arms and your delts up and down, up and down. But then mechanical tension is essentially the total amount of force that you are generating in a muscle during an exercise, regardless of whether or not you have brief pauses or not. So let's say that someone was doing a barbell squat, right? And they're doing a set of eight, 
and they go through their first three reps and they're moving pretty smoothly. But then when they're about to do their fourth rep, they just stop at the top. You know, they're standing straight up. They're looking in the mirror and they're just catching their breath and taking a few deep breaths and letting their heart rate come down a little bit for a few seconds before they go into their next rep. So there's a difference between constant tension and mechanical tension. And I would argue, and I'm pretty sure that the literature is pointing in this way as well, is that although both are, you know, important for hypertrophy and both have their role in an exercise program, I would argue that mechanical tension is a greater driver of hypertrophy because there are a lot of limiting factors to keeping constant tension on the, on a muscle. One is that it creates a lot of metabolic stress. So you're going to have a large buildup of metabolites. Your heart rate's going to be really high as well. And if you're constantly going and you're not letting your heart rate come down at all, or you're not letting your respiratory rate come down at all, right? I think that you might be limiting yourself to how much weight that you can actually lift. Whereas in terms of mechanical tension, you are able to generate more force. You're able to put a larger load on your body, regardless or not, if you stop for a few seconds during your set, you're able to lift more weight. And I think that in the long term, pushing yourself harder and lifting a little bit more weight for the same amount of reps, I think that's going to lead to greater muscle hypertrophy. So Jack, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, I pretty much agree with everything you've said. And the biggest thing that stands out to me is, let's say you're doing a heavy squat, uh, which is like eight to nine out of 10 intensity for you. And you're doing constant time under tension, not taking a break at the top. Then I think this will basically result in like a lot of form breakdown and yeah I couldn't agree more I was going to say that too your form would break down mm. and I don't think it's really it's going to be difficult you for you to progress time under tension and I think it's quite an old way of thinking to be honest um, to just think about time under tension like definitely it does translate into some like say if you're doing metabolic training or something like uh, blood flow restriction sure like it's probably more relevant there but definitely not if you're doing like deadlifts, squats, bench press, um, like gone are the days where you see bodybuilders do those like half rep bench press <laughs> to keep time under tension. Got, gotta keep tension on the muscle, man. Don't lose it. <laughs> no lockout. <laughs> mm. I think the key is Tierra said is just mechanical tension, uh, which is basically just progressively increasing the load over time in a variety of rep ranges. Yeah, it's really about thinking about the bigger picture, you know? So you really want to think about how are you progressing in the gym? Are you able to lift more weight? Are you able to lift more weight for more reps? And it's hard to quantify constant tension too, because like we talked about with those limiting factors, you know, with the metabolite buildup and your heart rate and everything, sometimes it's difficult to quantify whether or not you've actually improved in a session to session. Like sure, you know, you might get more accustomed to metabolite buildup or your cardio respiratory fitness might increase a bit, but it's really hard to track. So I would just focus on the bigger picture and I would really focus on, you know, total volume load and also progressing in number of reps that you can lift for a certain given weight or the number of sets that you're able to complete too. So I'm, yeah, I'm a huge advocate for mechanical tension and that's definitely why I like to reset with my reps because I'm not like, gotta feel the burn on my hip thrust because dude, I swear to God, I'm feeling the burn anyway. So, (laughs) and no need to keep constant tension. And also, even if it's not constant tension, you're still creating a huge amount of tension because you are still moving through the exercise for a longer period of time than you are resting during your set. So yeah, hopefully that clears it up. Hopefully that's a good explanation. Hopefully that made a few people think too. Mm. Okay, so we shall move on to the next question. So this next question says, taking laxative-like medications last weeks of prep when bowel motions decrease, for example, Metamucil. I think, yeah, this is sort of dangerous territory and I would probably be saying no. And Yeah, I I wouldn't advocate for laxatives. Hmm. And more just because it creates like a, you don't want to get into the habit of taking laxative when you feel like you should be going. I think 
it's quite normal for bowel motions, just probably especially for females because their caloric intake is even lower than males for to not be going as frequently. And there is like a joke among, um, I guess, bodybuilders that like the only times you do go during a prep is when you, you, you have your high days. So yeah. um, flushes everything out. But <laughs> The golden high days. <laughs> so I think just having good... Um, hygiene I say hygiene in the sense like having good practice with your bowel movements and making sure everything's set up for you to go like uh yeah this is interesting because my my dad is a gastroenterologist so I probably know on know a decent amount about this sort of stuff you mean like poop yeah about poop (laughs) I'm an expert but yeah I'm going on to a sort of tangent now which isn't really relevant to comp prep but a lot of people can get into problems with the psychological aspect of poop and even from just like ignoring urges to go to the bathroom and stuff like that whether it be like out and about or if you don't like the particular area that you're in to go or even if you're just too lazy to go and you just hold it in that can cause big troubles like one from it's kind of switching off the behavioral aspect of going so like say uh, it kind of confuses your brain in a sense Yeah, he called it toilet behavior. So, you know, listen to your body signals, what it's trying to tell you. And obviously, you know, if you're in the middle of like a meeting or something like that, you can't just be like, whoops, all right, got to go to the bathroom, Uh, which is really tough because I feel like a lot of people probably are in those situations in life. And again, people are generally highly stressed, but a lot of people in life during the day are like, go, 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 right? And they don't really have the time to be like, okay, go, go, go. I got to go poop, (laughs) right? So they ignore it. But the really bad thing about that is that if you continuously ignore those signals, then what can happen in your bowel is that it's almost kind of like a balloon is that your bowel continues to fill up with feces, right? And it actually continues to stretch. And then eventually you will go to the bathroom. But he was making a good point that they don't actually know if the bowel can actually shrink back down to its previous size. It may stay stretched. So if the bottom of the bowel is continuously stretched, then what happens is that you need more and more food bulk to fill up that stretch to activate the stretch receptors near your anus. I know we're going into all these details right now, but everyone does it, man. All right. This topic, everyone goes to the bathroom. I hope so. Otherwise, we'd all be dead or like we just stink. We'd all be farting. <laughs> anyway, the main thing is, is that that Each bowel... fart wouldn't really be a fart though. It it'd be just... a, sh- a shart. <laughs> anyway, yeah, your bowel keeps stretching. You need more and more food bulk to fill that up to activate those stretch receptors. And that can lead to problems in itself, especially if you... Like Jack said, you go on a diet and if you're a girl and you're very low calorie intake, you have a very low food intake, you don't have much food and much stool bulk. So a lot of stuff will just be sitting in you for quite a while. And that's not only uncomfortable, but I also don't think that it's very good for the bowel either because, you know, the bowel is a way that we eliminate waste through our body and we actually excrete a lot of dead blood cells through the bowel too, which is pretty interesting. it's brown, it's oxidized blood. Yeah. But the thing is, is that if you constantly have feces sitting in you for a prolonged period of time, I think that would have quite large detriments on your microbiome too, because the microbes in there would continue to feast on these already feasted upon feces. Like, I just think it would be an issue. Does Tierra have any strategies to poop? (laughs) (laughs) Strategies to poop? Um, A nice cup of coffee (laughs) generally does the trick, but generally just calm down. (laughs) I think that you need to be in a very relaxed state. And you know, there is the enteric nervous system, which is that relationship between your gut and the brain. So you really just need to de-stress. And also if you get those signals, don't ignore them. Don't literally hold it in. Go to the bathroom. It should be a priority because otherwise you just feel uncomfortable for the rest of the day. But yeah, stay well hydrated and all that jazz. Uh, but anyway, back to the question, if you were in the situation and you weren't going to the bathroom very often, would you take laxatives? No, I wouldn't, but I don't think I would personally, I think I would be okay just due to the amount of food bulk I eat. And 
For me, I think some people are very sensitive to coffee and how it stimulates motility because motility is the thing that basically pushes the, thro- the food through your intestines. And like if I take one sip of black coffee, <laughs> then I'm ready to go. <laughs> you have to be strategic about when you drink your coffee, eh? <laughs> but the, they've even done studies on this and they can't pinpoint what it is about coffee that makes I don't think poop. it's even the coffee because like it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not a even, caffeine, I think. No, it's not even the caffeine because they've done Maybe it with... tannins or something because yeah. it worked tea even works yeah because they've done it with decaf and caffeinated coffee and some people go poop with both so gosh i think who knows? It, i think it might even be the hot water i don't know because like and it, nah, I won't, even I won't ice coffees though man <laughs> something going on the magic beans mm. but anyway but yeah, we are we are thinking about getting our uh well my dad on uh who is gastroenterologist so i think that would be good to do like a Q&A with him and stuff like that. Yeah, certainly. But uh, yeah, I, I really wouldn't recommend taking laxatives just because like Jack said, you know, you might become dependent on it. Not only will your gut become dependent on it, but mentally you might become dependent on it and you might get into a habit of, oh, just ate a meal, better pop a laxative pill or, you know, better drink a sachet of, you know, um, something. And also laxatives can have downstream effects too, because it laxatives as well, if they're increasing the motility and some are very harsh, man, uh, laxative increase the motility of your gut, then you can have decreased nutrient absorption, macronutrient and micronutrient absorption there too. And it also, if it's going too fast, like a water slide or something, <laughs> Jack's looking at me with big eyes, like what? <laughs> Um, it can, you know, it can flush out a lot of your, um, healthy flora in especially your large colon. And a lot of people have probably experienced that too. When you have terrible stomach bug and you keep going to the bathroom, you actually flush out a lot of the healthy bacteria. So that can be a big issue too. So we're definitely not going to advocate for laxatives. If you want to take a laxatives, I would talk to a gastroenterologist or an experienced doctor first. Yeah. I think we answered that quite sufficiently. Yes. Okay, um, let's move on to another topic. <laughs> so this next question is by Colleen and she asks, what is a better workout split for bikini prep? Upper slash lower split or muscle specific splits? Hmm, so this is a really good question. Uh, so it says, first thing I want to touch on is that you said muscle specific splits. So I guess we should just go back to, you know, general recommendations saying that if you want to see growth and development in a muscle group, you need to train it at least twice per week. So I certainly wouldn't advocate for, you know, only training legs one day a week, then arms, then chest, then back, then shoulders, you know, that whole jazz. You want to set up your split so that you're at least hitting a muscle group twice per week. And there's generally pretty much two workout splits that work pretty well for bikini girls, I would say, uh, if they're training five days per week. So the first one would be doing three lower body days and then two full upper body days. Or what you can do if you wanted to get in more overall volume over across your whole body is that you could do two lower, two upper, and a full body day. Uh, Yeah, and I personally, I used to do like a four-day split. I used to do two lower days, and then I used to do a push and a pull day. And because I would go through those just four days, I was still hitting muscle groups at least twice per week. So I'd still like hit my chest twice within a one-week span, even though I was like auto-regulating my rest days and I wasn't training the exact same thing on every day. But in the past few months, I've swapped over from doing just one push day and one pull day to actually doing full upper body days. And I've noticed huge improvements, not only in my physique development, but also my strength and also my recovery too, because I just feel like I'm getting in such better quality volume. So usually with an upper body day, what I'll do is I'll do one vertical pull and one horizontal pull. I'll also do one vertical push and one horizontal push. And then I'll do like a tricep exercise, a bicep exercise, and like basically some lateral raises. So that's pretty much an upper body day for me because what a lot of people find when they just do like a push workout or a pull workout, if you do like a bunch of back exercises at the start, like large compounds, and then at the end you move into more like bicep work and stuff, 
by the end, by like your fifth exercise or something, your arms are just fried. And Jack, you can probably speak to that too, right? Because you used to do push-pull legs and now you do full upper. What's been your experience? Even though I know you're not a bikini girl. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I've had a similar experience. And the reason I moved to upper body days was basically due to the reasons Tierra said, like, I also like having the high frequency and being able to hit, for me, upper body three times a week uh, because maybe after 48 hours, you're fully recovered. So it's going to be more beneficial to stimulate those muscle groups again. Uh, whereas for me, like two leg day weeks, it works really well because I'm only just recovered uh, by the next leg day anyway. It's interesting because I train legs three times a week and upper twice. Jack and I are always on opposite days. So when he's training upper I'll be training lower when I'm training lower he's training an upper so we go whip whop whip whop but yeah hopefully that like what (laughs) (laughs) I don't know (laughs) but yeah hopefully that answers your question I would um I'd probably be more of an advocate for doing full upper body days for a bikini girl compared to doing one push and one pull day especially because it's likely that you are training your lower body more frequently than your upper body because you know a larger emphasis is generally placed on the lower body for most federations for the bikini division i know especially for like ifbb and wbff and things like that so yeah hopefully that answers your question so our final question for the day is on stevia. Is stevia really natural? Any better slash health, healthier than other artificial sweeteners? Yeah, so this is a great question. And I'm sure a lot of people, you know, preach for stevia because they say stevia is from a plant, right? So stevia must be better than anything else that came out of a laboratory. But the thing is, even though stevia technically comes from a plant, a lot of the stevia that people consume, it's still very, very highly processed. Like stevia comes from a plant that's green and it's not actually as sweet as it uh, usually tastes. And I remember, I'm not sure if anyone follows her, her name's Courtney King. She won Miss Bikini Olympia quite a few years ago, but she went on some big health kick once um, and she posted this video of her actually consuming the natural, natural stevia. And she had this huge bag of stevia, but it was actually green um, because it hadn't been as processed as the stuff that you buy that's usually like the white, really fine powder. And she said that it wasn't as sweet as what she's normally used to, especially, you know, those little stevia liquid drops and things like that. So yes, technically it's natural because it comes from a plant and it's not like other things like saccharin or aspartate or things like that, which are chemically made. But we also have to remember guys that everything is a chemical and your chemistry teacher would tell you that carbon. Ev- everything is chemistry, right? <laughs> carbon, hydrogen, right? So even though it's natural, I I wouldn't necessarily say that it's any better for you. There's just the research on artificial sweeteners and sweeteners is so mixed and mm. it's so inconclusive, but I think the general trend is really showing that They are safe, guys, unless you consume a stupid amount. Like you consume 20 liters of Diet Coke every day for 10 years straight, then yeah, maybe you might fart or something. (laughs) No, I mean, maybe you might have a health issue, but like you have to consume a huge amount of this stuff, right? So like a tiny little bit, I wouldn't really worry about it. without taking sweeteners. Please leave me alone. (laughs) But yeah, it is, um, Stevie is an interesting one because I remember we had that, uh, Gabrielle Fondaro on who's vitamin PhD on Instagram. And she was, we talked about quite a lot about sweeteners and, uh, aspartame is a synthetically produced sweetener. And obviously Stevia is natural, comes from Stevia leaf. And yeah, they, they did a study on basically the tolerance people had to different types of sweeteners and uh, stevia was much, much lower compared to aspartame. Like you could have like a considerable, huge amount of aspartame and it wouldn't give you any GI distress or discomfort, whereas stevia was much lower. But yeah, personally for me, it more comes down to the disruption to the microbiome. Like the only sweeteners I have currently are what's in protein powder. I think that's Saccharin. It's um, saccharin and sucralose. Mm, in VPA, which I think are both quite good ones. 
But even then, you know, you have one scoop of protein per day. That's like, it's minuscule. It's not making a difference. And also we have to think about the overall quality of a diet, guys, because if you're eating a whole bunch of really healthy, nutritious foods, you know, heaps of fiber, you're having regular bowel movements. If you have, you know, a little bit of artificial sweetener in your protein powder or in your coffee or something like that, or you have just anything, you know, an artificially sweetened candy, all of the good stuff in your diet, it's going to move that through and it's not going to cause any havoc. It's Mm. just about... I think think definitely sweeteners are something everyone's latched onto as like, uh, like a detriment to the microbiome or trying to think it is. But you got to remember all, what about all the other aspects of the diet that aren't Sweden, Sweden is like, uh, I have heard of quite a few things about things like emulsifiers and binders and all that sort of stuff, which yeah, and like certain types of xanthan gums and mm, stuff. Yeah. Which, which, because they're not as big in the media and they're not as related to dieting and fitness, like people don't think about them, but they're, I'm willing to bet you that there's more impact from especially synthetic emulsifiers compared to stuff like sweeteners. Yeah, I think everyone's just scared of the word artificial, but like, man, you really have to put it into the context. And I totally understand where people are coming from. You know, it makes sense. Like, hey, we're putting in this, you know, artificially sweetened, you know, synthetically made thing in a lab into our bodies. It's going to kill us, right? Or it might have a huge disruption to the microbiome. But scientists are trying so damn hard to prove that, but they can't. They just haven't been able to because the diet is so freaking complex. You eat so many different things every day, all right, throughout your lifespan that you can't expect one little thing to just blow it all up. Yeah, and this coincides well to what you learned this week, which is our final aspect of the podcast about the podcast you listen to. Oh yeah, so I listened to this awesome podcast episode this past week on Uplift Fit Nutrition. So that's a podcast channel. It's run by a registered dietitian over in the US called Lacey Dunn. And she had this woman on called the Farm Babe. So the Farm Babe is a huge advocate for farms, right? And she's just an epic woman. And she's always debunking all of these, you know, myths in the media about farming and agriculture and how people are so scared of pesticides and everyone wants their food to be organic and pesticide free and all of this sort of stuff. So yeah, I I learned a hell of a lot from that podcast, but I guess just a few of the very like main points would be that farmers aren't out to kill you, okay? <laughs> you guys need to understand that There are so many laws and legislations around what can go into our food and the food that we eat is safe, okay? And even organic farmers still spray their crops with pesticides. They're just organic pesticides, right? And also we have to remember that like farmers are trying to save money, right? So they're not just out there spraying all of their crops with all of this poison, right? One, because that would kill their crops. They wouldn't be able to sell them. They wouldn't make any money. They'd ruin their farm. And also all of these pesticides, you know, and different chemicals that they need to use on their crops to keep, you know, bugs away and to keep the soil fertile and all of that stuff that shit's expensive, man, okay? And they're not just gonna waste money on a bunch of stuff. But one of the main points I really wanna make is that the doses that they actually use in the pesticides are so low. So for example, there's this certain type of, uh, I just wanna use the word chemical, that they spray on crops at the very beginning of the cropping season. So before, for example, like imagine you had a big field of corn, right? What they would spray is something like 22 ounces of Roundup, which is such a small amount. But I think that's like equivalent to like two uh, soda cans. But that would be the total amount that would cover an entire football field full of crops. And that's only ever sprayed once at the very, very beginning of the growing season. And also they made these really good points that, you know, you see on all of these packages, like 
in coals and stuff, like no added hormones, right? No added antibiotics to the food. It's actually under legislation that they're not allowed to add hormones to our food, okay? And they're not allowed to give animals antibiotics. And if they do have to give an animal antibiotics in a very rare case, it again is very highly regulated and they need a qualified vet to actually go to the farm and to actually prescribe these antibiotics to the animals. So, oh gosh, I I could not recommend enough listening to this podcast. So yeah, Uplift Fit Nutrition, pretty sure it was episode 100 with the farm babe. It's so damn good. And there's also no difference in nutrition between organic and normal food no not at all it really doesn't come down to the pesticides that they use or this spray it actually comes down to more the soil quality and also what the season's like but they they do these large-term studies where they take the averages of different crops and sometimes organic oranges have less vitamin c or sometimes the normal oranges you know have less vitamin c it's give or take but the main thing is is that you should still be eating fruits and vegetables and if you're eating them in you know a a good amount and you're meeting your fruit and vegetable recommendations then you're going to get an abundance of nutrients anyway and you don't need to worry about whether one orange has an extra 20 milligrams of vitamin c compared to another and the other thing is all food grows in the dirt okay so wash your vegetables whether or not it's organic or (laughs) non-organic i hate using that word non-organic and especially my mom is a biochemist everything's organic oh everything's organic like the definition of organic is like it contains carbon nitrogen and hydrogen right i'm not a biochemist okay jack doesn't know but anyway (laughs) jack what did you learn this week so mine's going to be short and sweet compared to that but Essentially, this is about sleep hygiene, which are basically the habits that you undertake in order to get a good night's sleep. And so, for example, things might be wearing blue light blockers, uh, making sure you're at a good temperature before you sleep, making sure there's no noise. But something interesting that I heard on the Stronger by Science podcast was that essentially not relaxing for hours in your bed or in the area that you uh, sleep. And Tira says, Tira puts this well by saying, only use your bed for sleep and sex. So, (laughs) Can that be my life quote? (laughs) But yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, We'll see how it goes for prep, I guess. I don't disagree with that. (laughs) but yeah, like that, I thought that was an interesting fact. And that was, I think that was their number one uh, rule for sleep hygiene was don't, don't like lounge in your bed watching Netflix or things like that. Yeah, I think it's definitely good to separate it. So if you have a living room or something, you know, go out to the living room and watch your TV or go on your laptop at the table or something. But yeah, just try to use your bedroom for sleep. And that's really going to help with sleep onset latency and reducing that time and just helping you get a better quality sleep too. Yeah, so that wraps up today's podcast, guys. If you did enjoy the episode, please make sure to repost it onto your stories and share with your family and friends. And yeah, make sure to tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll see you guys next week. See you guys.